What could have uh, necessitated that kind of transformation, that kind of change from Saturday to Sunday, other than that the Messiah had come, the Messiah had lived, the Messiah had accomplished all of God's righteousness, had died a sacrificial death in our place, and had conquered death by rising from the dead? What else could have taken God's people from one orientation to a completely different orientation, other than Christ is risen? This time of year also marks the anniversary for the Crossing Church. It was in April of 2014 that we launched our first mission of communities and began moving forward and organizing as a church and eventually gathering like we're doing today on Sundays. This is our fourth Easter together on a Sunday. So Easter is a good time of year for us to remember what, what Christ has begun in us and what Christ has begun through us to our city. And it's been our passion and calling from the very beginning to be a part of God's mission in our city and in the world, to spread this good news about the resurrection of Christ, the life of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ to as many people as possible so that as many people as possible could come alive in Christ and enjoy Christ and be transformed by his gospel. And it's the same thing for this time right now. We have worship through song. We have worship through scripture. We have worship through prayer. And now we worship through the word proclaimed in our prayer and hope And what we're trusting the Spirit of God to do today in every single life that's in this room is that if you've never come alive in Christ, that this morning you would. And if you are alive in Christ this morning in an even deeper, even more joy-filled way, Christ would be your everything. Christ would be your life. Christ would be all that your heart and soul and mind is longing for. It's a waste of time to come to a place like this today and check the box and say, I went to church on Easter. It's a waste of time to come and sit and evaluate and give ratings to the music or the sermon or the people. We're not here to try to get four stars from you. We're here for an audience of one. And what we're hoping and praying and for, for you today is that you too would have your heart and mind captivated by him. We pray that continues now through the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Most of the time, we walk through books of the Bible because we want the full counsel of God. We don't want to just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we find easier to obey or the parts of the Bible that we like. We want it all. And so we're walking through this book. We started back in February. You can catch up on our teachings if, if you haven't been with us uh, on our podcast or website or app. But today, we, pick, we finish out chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Father, we are so grateful that you are alive, 
that our hope, our faith, and trust is not in a set of rules or a man who died, but in the God-man who came and fulfilled all the requirements, died in our place, and rose from the dead. We thank you that that has become a reality for many in this room, and we pray it would be for all today. Do your work, Father. We can't do it for you. Do it in such a way that you get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what we've seen so far in the first three chapters is Paul dealing with probably the overarching issue in this messy church of Corinth. Disunity. Fractionalism. The biggest cause of their disunity was this fractionalism based upon different groups in the church showing allegiance to, loyalty for, preference for a particular leader, as was referenced in the passage, a Paul faction, an Apollos faction, a Cephas or Peter faction. Some even, for chapter 1, say there might have been a Jesus faction, like super spiritual people. There were other reasons which caused division that we'll see throughout this letter, but this is the issues he's addressing so far, and Paul has been dealing that with that primarily through the first three chapters with the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified, and of course now risen, which is in fact his strategy throughout the letter. This is what you're doing wrong, Corinthians. This is where sin is present in your midst. And here's how the gospel, properly understood, applied, saturating all of your life, helps you transform from that sinful behavior. What we see in this passage is more of the same. Here are more reasons why you're being divided against one another, and it's not an accurate reflection of who you are, really, or who you're claiming to be. In fact, as we've seen already, we'll see in verse 21, their division was rooted in these these different factions boasting about a particular leader. Uh, Go back to chapter 1, verse 12. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You see, this boasting led to feelings of superiority, and those feelings of superiority led to division, and the ultimate remedy for that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, we see the ground is level for us. And we all are, in fact, the same. And there is only one who is superior. And he is not us. And we are not him. Through the gospel, we see that we all are, in fact, sinful and in desperate need of a Savior. And our only hope is the only Savior that God has provided, Jesus By sending his son to live a perfect holy life, the life that we fail at living every single day, and at the end of his life, not getting the worship and adoration of his people, but getting the cross, a form of punishment and death reserved for the worst of the worst, and then being buried, and on the third day, rising. Why did he get the cross, even though he was innocent and perfect? Because, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And on the third day he rose, which was a shock to everyone except God. Like none of his followers knew this was going to happen. If they did, they would have been outside the tomb waiting. Even when they saw him and they found out, it was still a mind-blowing reality for them. Jesus died. He was buried and rose, proving everything he said and did was true. The resurrection is the hinge. If the resurrection is true, everything else is true. If it's false, we don't have to believe any of this stuff. 
according to 1 Corinthians 15. It's all pointless. No other religion, no other belief system is based on a reality like this. That God came in the flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, died in the place of sinful people, rose from the dead, and offered salvation free to anyone who would repent of their sins and believe in Him. Every other belief system in the world, it's about you doing things to become somebody. Only in Christianity do we become someone first through faith in Jesus Christ, and then we live out that reality. This is why it's of His grace. This is why it's a gift to us, costly to Him, free to us. And understanding this gospel crushes our boasting Because it takes our eyes off of whatever is the cause or source of our boasting that makes us feel superior to others and elevate ourselves above others, and it places our eyes on the one. We're all the same. There's only one who should be boasted in. There's only one who should be elevated. And if together all of our eyes are focused on him, then we're not looking down on each other and boasting in things and feeling superior uh, to each other for whatever those things are that we're boasting in. The gospel crushes our boasting. The gospel crushes our feelings of superiority. The gospel crushes our divisions. Because there's only one who is supreme. There's only one who deserves glory. This is Christianity. Christianity is not about you cleaning yourselves up in all of our Easter finest. Oh, you're here today? You look great? Now God loves you. Just just because of all that. That's not Christianity. It's God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. At your worst, God loves you. And has died for you. And poured out himself for you. And that continues after you come to know Christ. Our standing now and forever is only and always rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done and not your performance. Please get that today, church. You're right, good, holy, and His because of Jesus. This is why it's good news. Because if it was because of us, that would not be good news. We would never keep it. We would never earn it. We would never pay it back. And when my eyes and when our eyes are consumed and captivated by that reality, even though we, I'm still, we're still amazingly selfish and sinful, I won't give in to the temptation to look at anyone or anything else and boast in that and feel superior over anyone else. But we will live in this posture of a humble recipient of His grace, and we will live to serve others who are also humble recipients of His grace, and we will be one. All humble and recipients of the grace of the one who has our hearts. This kills the temptation to feel superior over others when our minds and hearts are captivated by the one. So see the superiority of God in this passage today and who he makes us to be. Our God has made us, us. We look great today, but we're really a bunch of sinners. Our God has made us his temple Our God has given us his wisdom, and our God, in fact, as we'll see, has given us everything. And the question I hope and pray that we're all honest about this morning is this. Are we a part of this? Are you a part of this? Or are you on the outside looking in? The good news of the gospel is this. Because of Jesus, you can get in on this today. Today can be the day of your salvation. 
First, God has made us his temple, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul opens this this section with a, a form of a mild rebuke. Do you not know? Ten times Paul uses that expression in this letter to the Corinthians. Guess how many times he uses that expression in all of his other letters, all the other 12? Once. This church is a mess. Do you not know? Like maybe they knew but forgot, or maybe they really were ignorant, or maybe they had never fully thought out the implications of this reality. That you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. There's so much in those two verses. This could make just a really long sermon by itself, but I won't do that. It's Easter Sunday. Paul is referring to them as plural you. Like you could actually translate that as y'all, but you wouldn't do that because you just, you just wouldn't do that. You all uh, are God's temple, temple singular. So you all together collectively are God's singular temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 will speak of them also as God's temple, and in that passage, he will speak to them as individuals in an effort to help them fight against sexual immorality, to flee sexual immorality. Because individually, we are also part of God's temple and God's temple. But here, he's not speaking of individuals, but of collectively the group. And the word for temple doesn't refer to the whole temple complex, like all the courts and all the the outer courts and the inner courts and all the different places that people could be. It's referring to the the holiest part of the temple, the the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where the priest would go once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of of the nation, to atone for their sins. Now, we, we don't get this concept of temple like they, they would have in the first century. Like, we don't deal with temples a lot. But in, in the first century, to the, even the Jew or the Greek mindset, this is, this is a mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting reality to say that a bunch of people are the temple of God, where the Spirit of God dwells. Like, if you, you know the Bible, you'll know a lot of these references. If you don't know the Bible, it's okay. You'll, you'll understand it and, and give you motivation to, to understand the Bible. But think back through the Old Testament and the significance of the temple. There's, there's no temple until 1 Kings 6, around 1000 B.C., B.C.E., whichever you prefer. Up until that time, God had appeared to his people through visions and dreams, spoken directly to his people all you see that all the way through the book of Genesis, going into Exodus, now God appears to Moses through the burning bush that was made famous in film. God speaks through Moses to the people, leads the people out of Egypt to the promised land. They stop at Mount Sinai on the way where God speaks and, and appears to his people on Mount Sinai to give them his, his law, his commands. This is how you're going to live as my people in this land that I'm giving you to make you distinct, holy, set apart from all other peoples. And within those commands, there were instructions to build this structure called a tabernacle. Basically a huge, tremendous, fancy tent. And within the tabernacle, God would come and meet with his people. The tabernacle is where the priest would go and intercede between God and the people and offer sacrifices for them. And God gave all these regulations for sacrifices so that the people, as they brought these innocent animals, animals to be slaughtered for their sins, think about that, animals killed not to eat, but because of our sins, it would be a yearly reminder that you still sin, And because I told Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, if you sin, you will die. Someone has to die for your sins because sin brings death. 
But because God is gracious, I won't kill you every time you sin. I'll allow your sins to pile up and let you bring the the sacrifice of an innocent one to be killed on your behalf, to be killed in your place as your substitute, a spotless, perfect animal. And this relationship between God and his people continued centered around this tabernacle as they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years, as they came into the promised land. This went on for several hundred years until King David looks at the house he's living in and says, I got this great house and God's living in a tent. That's not right. I want to build him a house. And God says, look, I appreciate that, David, but you have too much blood on your hands. So you collect the materials and I'll let your son Solomon build it. And that's what we see in 1 Kings 6. And it it was glorious. It was magnificent. It was one of the the wonders of the ancient world. Tremendous, huge, beautiful, overlaid with with gold and, and precious metals and stones. It was a phenomenal structure, and it lasted until 586 when the sins of God's people had, had built to such a point that he decided, now it's time to judge my people for their sins, and he allowed the Babylonians to come in to conquer Jerusalem and burn the temple to the ground. And it's hard for us to understand like how, how difficult that would have been to process. Um, read the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah's writing that book as he's watching Jerusalem burn. We got 9-11. That gets close to how you would feel. But those buildings stood in one part of our country for about 40 years. The temple stood for over 400 years. And it was the center, not just of the religious life of the Jews, but the center of all of life. And now it's gone. And they come back from exile after 70 years in Babylon, and God allows them to rebuild the temple. But it's not as good as Solomon's temple, and they know that. They're crying. This is not as good as it was. That temple stands for a few hundred years, and then the Greeks burn it down. And the Romans, during the time of Jesus, they allowed them to rebuild the temple the third time. And this is Herod's temple. And it was big and great and and grand again. And it was still the center of Jewish life and the center of Jewish culture and religious life. And this is why it was shocking for Jesus to come along and say things like he did in John uh, John 4, verse 20 through 21 where he says in response to this Samaritan woman's question, our, our fathers worship in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. What? what? It's been the practice of the Jews for, for a long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they worship in Jerusalem. What is he talking about? Or John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews standing around him said, What are you talking about? This temple took 46 years to build up to this point, and you're going to raise it in three days? Much less destroy it? And John adds a note of commentary that Jesus wasn't talking about the brick and stone temple of his body. He was talking about the brick, the brick and stone temple. He was talking about his body. He was giving insight, foreshadowing his crucifixion, his resurrection. And so we begin through the ministry of Jesus, see these hints that Jesus has has brought a different reality to the life of God's people. Where worshiping God is not dependent upon a place or a building, but being a people. This was further emphasized when Jesus died in the veil in the temple that separated the holiest place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, this huge thick curtain that only the priest could go behind one time a year was torn in two from top to bottom, a way that it was torn that only God could do, signifying all are welcome, access, come. You no longer have to go through the sacrifices. You no longer have to go through the priest 
because the high priest has come and done all of the work and is now sitting at the right hand of God. There was no furniture in the Holy of Holies because the priest was always working. But when Jesus was done, the Bible says he sits down at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. There is no more work to be done. And now we have access through him, Jesus, the great high priest. Now location doesn't matter. Structures don't matter. Even that temple that was being rebuilt in Jesus' day would be destroyed again and has never been rebuilt. So see, try and see how shocking this was to to the Jews in the first century with all of that history and heritage behind them for, for Paul to say, you people are the temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. Even to the, the, the Greeks, the Romans, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they, they made fun of the Jews because you go into the Jewish temple and they're looking around for their gods. Where are your gods at? They're looking for little statues or big statues. Your God's invisible? Who worships an invisible God? And now you're telling the Greeks and the Romans that it's not just you don't have a, a statue of your God, but you don't even have a place to go, a temple to go and, and, and do religious practices and ceremonies. It was earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting, God dwelling in his people, so much so that it actually is nonsense to say, let's go to church. It's a nonsensical statement. We know what it means in our culture. We know what people mean by that, come to a place like this to do something like this. But theologically, it doesn't make any sense. Or to say, this is the Lord's house. Like he lives here or something. You know, tell your kids, you got to behave, it's God's house. Don't eat candy in God's house. Don't drink coffee in God's house. Don't leave your wrapper, candy wrappers on the seats in God's house. Some of you grew up in environments like that where you could probably, I don't know, you walk in naked into a church gathering before you could bring candy into a church gathering. Because it was like the big rule. You can't have candy in God's house. Maybe that was just me and I'm scarred. I don't know. The people of God are the dwelling place of God's presence in the world today. And he dwells in a people that we have seen and will see are incredibly sinful, broken, and fallen. To the Corinthians, yes, you are God's temple. To the crossing church, First Baptist Church, you are God's temple. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Not this building. It's only, he's only in this building where we're here. Worshiping him. Otherwise, it's just concrete and wires and stone and metal. God's spirit is in his people wherever they are. When our missional communities gather, that's where God's people are. God's spirit is there with God's people. When our DNA groups meet. When we gather together in any way, there is the presence of God all over the world. Like, see how amazing this is. Like, imagine you going and standing out at the mall or at the airport or on a busy street and just asking people who come by, where's God at? Where's God at? Have you seen him? All the different responses you would get. Think about all the possible places that millions upon millions of people are searching for or thinking God is this morning. He's on the highest mountain. He's in the wealthiest places or the most powerful man-made buildings. He's... But he's not in any particular place apart from his, his people being there. 
So God can be on the highest mountains if his people are there. God can be in the wealthiest, most powerful buildings that man builds if his people are there. Now I know you're saying, isn't God omnipresent? Yes, God is omnipresent. He really is everywhere. But where can you meet with God, know God, love God, serve God, find out who he is? It has to be a church. It has to be through the word of God and the spirit of God, through the people of God being proclaimed, taught, instructed. It has to be where the people of God gather where his spirit dwells, which helps us understand better the warning of verse 17, where he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Because we are the dwelling place of God's spirit, we cannot take sin lightly. All through the Old Testament, sin had no place in the Old Testament temple. The sacrifices had to be spotless, blemishless, without blemish. The priest had to be spotless, had to be cleansed and purified before they go into the temple. All these rules to keep impurities and sin out of God's temple. And it's the same for us, church. Despite the fact that we still sin, sin still has no place in us, and we must Never become cozy with sin. The temple of God, this this temple of God is holy, set apart, distinct. No other part of creation is the dwelling place of God like God's people. And if we are professing that with our lips, then our lives have to reflect that. What was happening in the lives of the Corinthian church through this issue of disunity and fractionalism, as well as other sinful issues that we'll see, is they were not dealing with the sin that was in them. They were allowing sin to have a place it should not have. They were becoming cozy with sin. Like nobody is suggesting that we should be or even can be perfectly sinless. The Bible doesn't teach perfectionism. It's not possible this side of heaven. Anyone who suggests that it is doesn't understand the nature of sin, how pervasive it is. Every single person in this room has sinned since you walked into this building this morning. Either something intentionally wrong that you've done in your mind or your heart or outside of your mind and your heart, or something good you haven't done in your mind or heart or with your body. It's a constant issue for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. Who can do that all the time? Consistently. Never slipping up for one minute. Nobody except for Jesus. Sin is pervasive in us. Every single person in this room is constantly dealing with the presence of sin in their life. But that doesn't give us permission to indulge in sin. But it helps us see how much we need Jesus and the gospel all the time so that we're living in this atmosphere of repentance and faith in him so that when we are made aware of our sins, our first response is not to run and hide. Maybe God won't see me over here. Or run and hide and try and cover ourselves with fig leaves and cover up our shame or our guilt. The response of the Christian when confronted with the reality of your sin is to run to Jesus. To see him and opening his arms, embracing you. To turn from your sin and receive and be loved by me again. And let my spirit come in you and cleanse you again, afresh and anew. And then, and then as he told the woman caught in the sin of adultery in John chapter 8, Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And when you do sin, come back to me again. And I'll do the same thing 
and go and sin no more. And I'll do it 10 million times until you breathe your last and I bring you into my presence and you never have to worry about that again. To allow sin to have a place in us, to continue in sin, willingly, knowingly, without confession and repentance, is to threaten to destroy the temple of God. And God says in verse 17, I will destroy him. Don't soften this. Don't try to make this palatable. Don't try to give God a way out from what this is saying. If you attempt to destroy God's temple through sin, God says, I will destroy you. I will destroy you. To continue in sin is to bring the discipline of the Lord onto yourself. Now, how is the Lord going to destroy this presence of sin in this temple? Well, this is not the wood, hay, and straw of verse 15 we looked at last week that's burned up in the fire, that, that evaluation on judgment day when all of our works are tested to see if we've done anything of eternal value. And whatever we haven't done of eternal value is just going to be burned up as worthless. That, that's not what he's referring to. There's no reason to think this is eternal punishment God is talking about because he's talking to his church. And we know that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's therefore now no condemnation. It could be, or rather the way to think about it is, is, is a punishment fitting the sin. So it could be in chapter 5, the guy they had to kick out of the church and turn over to Satan because he continued unrepentantly in a sin that Paul says even the Gentiles don't commit. It could be chapter 11, where you'll see their sin was so bad and how they were treating one another, the rich favoring themselves over the poor, and then coming to take this, this meal of unity, communion, Paul says, some of you are getting sick and some of you are dying because of this sin that is present in the body of Christ. Now, imagine that. If we started getting sick or we started dying because of the presence of sin in our midst. Whatever it is, the point is not to try and figure out what punishment God may give you for a particular sin. The point is not to figure out to what degree can I go in my sin where I don't cross that line. How much can I get away with? The point of all of these warning passages to the children of God in Scripture is to run from sin, to flee sin. To not play around with it, not see how much you can get away with, but like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, to leave the cloak in her hand and take off. I don't even want to be around it if it's that serious. One sin in the garden brought the curse of creation, brought the curse of sin into creation and necessitated the sacrifice of the only one who was pure, holy, and righteous. One sin. Why would we ever be cozy with sin? Why would we ever shrug our shoulders at sin? It's that serious. But also see that the Lord has done everything necessary to deal with all of our sins. And that his his mercies are new every morning. His grace, mercy, and love is overwhelming. That there's no sin that you've ever committed that can't be forgiven and isn't already forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's just us realizing that, living that out, and walking in repentance and faith in him. If you're here today 
and you're not a Christian, you can do that. Come alive in Christ and be forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you're here today and you're only a religious person, but you've never had your heart and mind captivated by Jesus, you can come alive in Him today by turning from sin and trusting in Him. If you're a believer here today and sin has a place in your life that is unhealthy, where you are hiding and enjoying a particular sin, heed this warning. Hear this warning. Let Jesus cleanse you in a new way and be free from that bondage and slavery. Let none of us in this room hear this and be able to shrug our shoulders at the presence of sin in our lives. If you are a child of God, you are a part of the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Jesus has done everything to do that for us. God is supreme and superior above all because he can and has made us his temple and dwelling place. Secondly, he's given us his wisdom through the gospel. Picking up verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Let no one deceive himself, which opens the door to the possibility that you could deceive yourself. Self-deception is when a person tries to justify their thoughts, words, and actions and refuses to admit that they are wrong. I'm always right. Nobody here, I'm sure. It's just those other people out there, right? This is another reason we need healthy community. We're all prone to believe our own press. And what's happening in social media is that we're, we're becoming even more isolated in these echo chambers where we're only hearing and reading people who just bounce back our ideas to us. And it takes a lot of effort to get outside your echo chambers to really learn from different communities of thought and belief that are out there and to really be challenged in areas that we need to be challenged. We need healthy community way beyond social media. Please, let's not even call that healthy community. It's just a tool. We need flesh and blood community. People who are in our homes, people who are in our lives, people who are at our jobs or places we work, play, eat, or shop who look us in the face and encourage us and hold us accountable to who we claim to be, who will be our brothers and sisters in Christ. They'll also be our friends. And they will love us enough to do the hard work that we need that only a community can give. Or else we'll be self-deceived. And we might embrace and but leave worldly wisdom, which Paul's been telling us from chapter 1 onward, is wasting away and futile. It does, he does so here again in these verses with these two Old Testament quotations from Job and Psalm. The best wisdom the world has to offer is futile compared to the wisdom of God. It's not just that the wisdom of the world is wrong. It doesn't even compare and doesn't last. Like it's, not, it's not just right and wrong. It's, it's, it's good or, or bad. It's healthy or unhealthy. It's eternal or temporary. There's no comparison when you look at the wisdom of the world compared to the wisdom of God. Everything you need to know the world tells you, you have the answer within yourself. Just look within yourself and you'll find it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and solve your problems. Pride, arrogance, boasting in what you know, boasting in what you possess, boasting in what you can do. 
The man who dies with the most toys wins. Selfish ambition, greed. Look at me, how great I am. Look how many followers I have. It's all a waste, the wisdom of this world. And it's all wasting away. Paul says we have to become fools in the eyes of those who embrace such wisdom in order to become truly wise in God's eyes. The wisdom of God in the gospel is you can't save yourself. You live only when you die. You get everything only when you admit you bring nothing to the table. There's nothing in us that can earn or deserve the the gospel of God. You want to be first? Be last. Don't just love those who love you back. Love your enemies. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. There's no place for personal vengeance or retaliation in the life of the Christian. If someone wants your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Don't take vengeance for yourself that belongs to the Lord alone. Don't live consumed with making a name and reputation for yourself. Make much of my name, God says, and I'll handle your reputation. Don't worry or be anxious seeking all, after all the things of this life. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Instead of seeking those things, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Marriage, parenting, sinfulness, sexuality, gender, time, money, jobs, recreation, family, vacations, retirement, hobbies, entertainment, relationships, social media, sports, culture, food, physical fitness, politics, government, every single area of life. There is a way of the world and that worldly wisdom is passing away. And there is God's way and his wisdom will last forever to deal with all of that. Sometimes you hear and see God's wisdom showing up in unexpected places, and you're like, well, that's good and helpful, and I read it in Chicken Soup for the Soul. You know, is that God's wisdom or not God's wisdom? Is that God's truth or not God's truth? Well, that's God's truth, too. All truth is God's truth. But that little nugget of truth that you read on a fortune cookie is not intended for you to go back to the fortune cookies to get more wisdom and truth. It's intended for you to go to the one who is wise above all and who determines what is wise and what is unwise, what is true and not true. Because that's God's common grace to humanity, to scatter his image, to scatter his truth, to scatter his attributes all through creation so that we would find our way back to him because of his grace and love and mercy. The true wisdom of God Paul's been talking about throughout this letter isn't just God's better way of living, but it's God's wisdom ultimately on display through Jesus and the gospel, whose primary message is you cannot save yourself. Only God can save you. You cannot make yourself right in God's eyes. You will not stand before God one day when you are dead and get in based on anything you've done or haven't done. You will not merit any access to God on your own. It is only through Jesus. He alone has done what's necessary to give us access to God. And that message is the one that is hardest for our prideful hearts to embrace. Because we want to be able to take some credit for our salvation. And the way that God has chosen to save us does not allow for that to happen at all. God's not chosen us to save us because of any quality we possess. It's not like God choosing teams to play a pickup game of basketball. He's looking for the best and the tallest and the fastest and the most athletic. Those are going to be people on my team. Of course I'm saving them. Look how amazing they are. God's not choosing to save the ones who are most pitiful. And the more pitiful we can look, the more God chooses us. 
God has chosen those who are dead. And us experiencing that salvation and admitting that apart from Jesus, we are only dead. That's the best we can do. A corpse. Which seems foolish to some, maybe many, but it is true wisdom. Which will make you seem like a fool to the world, but in God's economy, in fact, makes you wise and gives you life. And God has done it like this so that no one would boast in men, but we would boast only in Him, always giving Him the glory, which might seem to some to be very narcissistic of God. Gosh, He seems like an egomaniac. He's always about Himself and His glory and making sure He gets credit for everything and all the worship of the universe has to go to Him. seems so self-centered. But if the Bible, what the Bible says about God is true, he really is who the Bible says that he is, he's really done what the Bible says he's done, who else do you want the glory and the credit to go to? Who else should we worship? If there is any entity, being, idea, greater than God, then he is not God. And we should be worshiping that other thing. But there is no entity more supreme or superior than him. So he, of course, is the only one who deserves this adoration, glory, worship of all of creation. There is no one else greater to boast in. The last way we see his superiority is in the fact he has given us everything. Verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. The reason we don't boast in men and embrace feelings of superiority over one another is because they are also given to the church as a gift of his grace and belong to the church. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Peter, they, the people don't belong to them. They belong to the people. Jared, Kendrick, Scott, Jesse, Joseph, mission community leaders in our church, pastors, you don't belong to us. We belong to you, the church. We are yours. Gifts of God's grace given to his people so that we are all humble recipients of his grace. We're all on level ground looking up. No one is looking down on anyone else. The second we begin to look down and feel superior about anything, we begin to divide. So I ask you this morning, church, in whatever ways you see that in your heart or your mind, kill it. Kill it. The first second you feel like you are better than someone else because of blank. Crush it with the gospel. Look up to the one who alone we boast in and gives us grace. Instead of these people boasting, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, it should have been, we belong to God. We are his. It's not just that God has graciously given his people their leaders, but it gets even better in that passage. He's given us the world, life, death, the present, and future. God's given those to us as well. Five areas of life we typically are enslaved by. And Paul tells us here, you're not a slave to those things. In Christ, you actually possess them. They are yours. They are yours in Christ who is master over those things and you in Christ get to rule over those things with him. I know you're thinking like, what are you talking about? 
How do I rule over the world or life or death of the present or the future? Remember, this kingdom of Christ has already come but is not yet fully consummated, fully realized. There's more to this kingdom that we're waiting for the eternal state. But we get glimpses of it in Christ. But typically, our our world and and where we're tempted to go in our flesh is to be enslaved to these things. The world consumes us. The world demands so much of our mind and hearts and attention that we can usually hardly see beyond this temporary world. So much of what we spend time consumed with is only temporary. Just lose your phone and you'll see how consuming this world is. This life enslaves us, trying to make the most of this life, soak it all in. We give so much energy to squeeze as much from this life as possible to make this life last as long as possible. We want to preserve and protect this life to whatever degree is possible. Stay safe, stay alive. Death hangs over our head, always looming in the distance, showing up at unexpected and unwanted times. We're so afraid of death, we usually won't discuss it, or maybe we're so consumed by it, we live in fear of it. And so we work like crazy to keep it away. Ultimately, we're powerless. It's coming. It's coming for all of us unless Christ returns. The present, this incessant drumbeat demanding our attention. There's always something to be done. Always next. Always next. There's always something next to be done. We don't hardly have time to enjoy the present because what's next is so demanding. And it never ends. You never get ahead. You never get your to-do list done unless it's really, really short. And you, you make it really short just to feel good about getting it done. But you know there's like 10 other things you didn't write down because you don't want to feel bad about not getting it done. Tricks we play with ourselves. The future. We think we have control over and we act as though we have control over it, but we're helpless to a large degree. What's going to happen to me, my kids, my marriage, my job? How can I get to retirement? How can I get a better future? What's going to happen to our nation? Where's all of this going? Will it always seem so chaotic? Will the future always seem so out of control, scary, unknown, mysterious? And every single human on the face of the earth is enslaved to these realities. And in these two verses, Paul helps us see beyond that to a new, true, greater reality that we are not slaves to those things. We, in fact, possess them in Christ. Because we are in Christ, they belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, this is a little bit of a nod of the head to the, the subordinate nature of the, the Son to the Father within the triune Godhead. God is one in three persons. There is one God, and there is the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not the Son and the Spirit. The Son is not the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son and the Father, but they're all one God. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. We've actually seen it throughout this passage because the Spirit's mentioned in verse 16 as being the Spirit of God, co-equal, co-eternal, but within the Godhead there are distinctions. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, to give His life as a, ran- life as a ransom for many. Only the Son did that. When the Father and Son, then the Father and Son sent the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God in us makes us the temple of God. The Spirit indwelling us allows Jesus to say to his fathers, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, right before he ascends into heaven. But if we are in him, we are slaves. We are not slaves to the drumbeat of this world and life and death and the present and the future. We possess them in Christ, which means the world belongs to Christ and thus belongs to us. We'll see in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul correcting these believers because they were suing one another in courts. And he's saying, Why are you taking your disputes to earthly judges? You are going to judge with Christ, the world, and the angels. I'm not going to unpack that. You'll have to come back for that. 
But in some way, there's something coming where we're going to rule with Christ in some way over the world and angels. Just leave you hanging with that one. Don't, don't even know what that's going to look like. So in some way, we have this identity, this inheritance with Christ that we can't imagine. We're going to inherit the new heavens and earth, and we're going to get to enjoy this for all of eternity. Live for that greater reality and not just be overly consumed with the temporary and present. Life and death is redefined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can live fearlessly and fully in this life, giving our days to desires and activities that will lay up treasure in heaven. As we saw last week, we're building on a foundation of Jesus with eternal materials. Yes, we're in the same daily grind everybody else is in. But we're living it out with hope and joy and peace in the presence of Christ in such a way people will come to us and say, what is the reason for the hope that you have? Let me tell you. We're living differently because of the presence of Christ in the everyday grind that everybody else experiences with rest. And we live with absolutely no fear of death. We do not fear death. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I get to live, I get Christ. Great. If I die, it gets even better. We're not afraid of death. You know how transforming that is for people in your life to not be afraid of death? For God to send you wherever to do whatever for his glory and not be afraid of death? For you to hear any diagnosis from any doctor and not be afraid of death? To have this hope in Christ? Paul says in Romans 14, 7 through 9, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Guys, this allows us to give our lives away for the good of others, not in fear, but in faith. We don't have to try and save ourselves. We've been saved. We don't have to try and preserve our lives. We will be preserved. We don't have to live in fear of sin and evil in this world. It won't touch us apart from God's providential will. We don't live consumed with money issues because our Father owns the universe and promises to give us everything we need to do what He's called us to do. Present and future. He is the Lord of the present and sovereign over the future. We don't live as slaves in the present. We don't live in fear of the future. Every single second belongs to him. We possess it in Christ and we are so rooted in Christ. We live in peace and rest knowing he will provide everything we need for this life. We can be at peace because our lives will last exactly as long as he is ordained and not one cell of our body will fall out of his gracious providence. Paul puts these same truths like this in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He didn't spare Jesus. He won't spare whatever else we need as his children. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On this Easter Sunday, when we celebrate that Jesus is alive and not dead, what about you? What about you? Are you alive in him and not dead? Is his life alive in you? Is Jesus precious to you? In the deepest part of your being, do you hate sin? And are you trusting in Jesus to conquer your sins and make you right with God? Are you trusting in Jesus for your life now and your life forever? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're still alive. And the reality is, if you're on the outside looking in, by God's grace, you can get in on this today. You can get on this today as you turn from your sins and trust in Him. As we pray, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised from the dead, you can be saved. And so right where you're sitting, in your mind, in your heart, if you realize this morning by the Spirit of God that you're not alive in Christ and Christ is not alive in you, I want to invite you to call out to Him for salvation. Turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus. And and I pray, my, my prayer for you this morning is that you wouldn't hold on to anything else as the basis of your right standing with God. You won't look to past decisions or been baptized or been church, my parents are Christians. None of those things matter. The reality is, is Jesus alive in you right now? If you need to talk more about this, I'll be in the back. Our other pastor, Kendrick's in the back. The person you came with, there's tons of people here who want to walk you, with, walk you through the gospel. It only involves childlike faith and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So as we sing a song in a few minutes, please come and let's talk. Let it be known that Christ has come alive inside of you. The church does this through baptism. We'll talk to you about that. You're now a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. We'll, we'll show you how to do that. Father, I pray for any Christians that are here this morning that are struggling with sin, sorrow, worry, doubt, insecurity before you, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would come now and bring healing, hope, encouragement, and life also. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.